Section 16 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tracy Datlin. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorstein Veblen. Chapter 7. Dress as an Expression of the Pecuniary Culture. It will place, by way of illustration, to show in some detail how the economic principles so far set forth apply to everyday facts in some one direction of the life process. For this purpose, no line of consumption affords a more apt illustration than expenditure on dress. It is especially the rule of conspicuous waste of goods that finds expression in dress although other, related principles of pecuniary repute are also exemplified in the same contrivances. Other methods of putting one's pecuniary standing in evidence serve their end effectually, and other methods are in vogue always and everywhere. But expenditure on dress has this advantage over most other methods, that our apparel is always in evidence and affords an indication of our pecuniary standing to all observers at the first glance. It is also true that admitted expenditure for display is more obviously present and is perhaps more universally practiced in the manner of dress than in any other line of consumption. No one finds difficulty in assenting to the commonplace that the greater part of the expenditure incurred by all classes for apparel is incurred for the sake of a respectable appearance rather than for protection of the person. And probably at no other point is the sense of shabbiness so keenly felt as it is if we fall short of the standard set by social usage in this matter of dress. It is true of dress in even a higher degree than of most other items of consumption that people will undergo a very considerable degree of privation in comforts or the necessities of life in order to afford what is considered a decent amount of wasteful consumption, so that it is by no means an uncommon occurrence in an inclement climate for people to go ill-clad in order to appear well-dressed. And the commercial value of the goods used for clothing in any modern community is made up to a much larger extent of the fashionableness, the reputability of the goods, than of the mechanical service which they render in clothing the person of the wearer. The need of dress is eminently a higher or spiritual need. The spiritual need of dress is not wholly or even chiefly a naive propensity for display of expenditure. The law of conspicuous waste guides consumption in apparel, as in other things, chiefly at the second remove, by shaping the canons of taste and decency. In the common run of cases, the conscious motive of the wearer or purchaser of conspicuously wasteful apparel is the need of conforming to established usage and of living up to the accredited standards of taste and reputability. It is not only that one must be guided by the code of proprieties in dress in order to avoid the mortification that comes of unfavorable notice and comment, though that motive in itself counts for a great deal, but besides that, the requirement of expensiveness 
is so ingrained into our habits of thought in matters of dress that any other than expensive apparel is instinctively odious to us. Without reflection or analysis, we feel that what is inexpensive is unworthy. A cheap coat makes a cheap man. Cheap and nasty is recognized to hold true in dress with even less mitigation than in other lines of consumption. On the ground of both taste and of serviceability, an inexpensive article of apparel is held to be inferior under the maxim cheap and nasty. We find things beautiful as well as serviceable, somewhat in proportion as they are costly. With few and inconsequential exceptions, we all find a costly hand-wrought article of apparel much preferable in point of beauty and of serviceability to a less expensive imitation of it, however cleverly the spurious article may imitate the costly original. And what offends our sensibilities in the spurious article is not that it falls short in form or color, or indeed in visual effect in any way. The offensive object may be so close an imitation as to defy any but the closest scrutiny. And yet, so soon as the counterfeit is detected, its aesthetic value, and its commercial value as well, declines precipitately. Not only that, but it may be asserted, with but small risk of contradiction, that the aesthetic value of a detective counterfeit in dress declines somewhat in the same proportion as the counterfeit is cheaper than its original. It loses caste aesthetically because it falls to a lower pecuniary grade. But the function of dress as an evidence of ability to pay does not end with simply showing that the wearer consumes valuable goods in excess of what is required for physical comfort. Simple conspicuous waste of goods is effective and gratifying as far as it goes. It is good prima facie evidence of pecuniary success and, consequently, prima facie evidence of social worth. But dress has subtler and more far-reaching possibilities than this crude, first-hand evidence of wasteful consumption only. If, in addition to showing that the wearer can afford to consume freely and uneconomically, it can also be shown in the same stroke that he or she is not under the necessity of earning a livelihood. The evidence of social worth is enhanced in a very considerable degree. Our dress, therefore, in order to serve its purpose effectually, should not only be expensive, but it should also make plain to all observers that the wearer is not engaged in any kind of productive labor. In the evolutionary process by which our system of dress has been elaborated into its present admirably perfect adaptation to its purpose, this subsidiary line of evidence has received due attention. A detailed examination of what passes in popular apprehension for elegant apparel will show that it is contrived at every point to convey the impression that the wearer does not habitually put forth any useful effort. It goes without saying that no apparel can be considered elegant or even decent if it shows the effect of manual labor on the part of the wearer in the way of soil or wear. The pleasing effect of neat and spotless garments is chiefly, if not altogether, 
due to their carrying the suggestion of leisure exemption from personal contact with industrial processes of any kind. Much of the charm that invests the patent leather shoe, the stainless linen, the lustrous cylindrical hat, and the walking stick, which so greatly enhance the native dignity of a gentleman, comes of their pointedly suggesting that the wearer cannot, when so attired, bear a hand in any employment that is directly and immediately of any human use. Elegant dress serves its purpose of elegance, not only in that it is expensive, but also because it is the insignia of leisure. It not only shows that the wearer is able to consume a relatively large value, but it argues at the same time that he consumes without producing. The dress of women goes even farther than that of men in the way of demonstrating the wearer's abstinence from productive employment. It needs no argument to enforce the generalization that the more elegant styles of feminine bonnets go even farther towards making work impossible than does the man's high hat. The woman's shoe adds the so-called French heel to the evidence of enforced leisure afforded by its polish. Because this high heel obviously makes any, even the simplest and most necessary manual work, extremely difficult. The like is true even in a higher degree of the skirt and the rest of the drapery which characterizes woman's dress. The substantial reason for our tenacious attachment to the skirt is just this. It is expensive and it hampers the wearer at every turn and incapacitates her for all useful exertion. The like is true of the feminine custom of wearing the hair excessively long. But the woman's apparel not only goes beyond that of the modern man in the degree in which it argues exemption from labor, it also adds a peculiar and highly characteristic feature which differs in kind from anything habitually practiced by the men. This feature is the class of contrivance of which the corset is the typical example. The corset is, in economic theory, substantially a mutilation undergone for the purpose of lowering the subject's vitality and rendering her permanently and obviously unfit for work. It is true the corset impairs the personal attractions of the wearer, but the loss suffered on that score is offset by the gain in reputability which comes of her visibly increased expensiveness and infirmity. It may broadly be set down that the womanliness of woman's apparel resolves itself, in point of substantial fact, into the more effective hindrance to useful exertion offered by the garments peculiar to women. This difference between masculine and feminine apparel is here simply pointed out as a characteristic feature. The ground of its occurrence will be discussed presently. So far, then, we have as the great and dominant norm of dress, the broad principle of conspicuous waste. Subsidiary to this principle, and as a corollary under it, we get as a second norm the principle of conspicuous leisure. In dress construction, this norm works out in the shape of diverse contrivances, going to show that the wearer does not, and as far as it may conveniently be shown, cannot engage in productive labor. Beyond these two principles, there is a third, 
of scarcely less constraining force, which will occur to anyone who reflects at all on the subject. Dress must not only be conspicuously expensive and inconvenient, it must at the same time be up to date. No explanation at all satisfactory has hitherto been offered of the phenomenon of changing fashions. The imperative requirement of dressing in the latest accredited manner, as well as the fact that this accredited fashion constantly changes from season to season, is sufficiently familiar to everyone, but the theory of this flux and change has not been worked out. We may, of course, say with perfect consistency and truthfulness that this principle of novelty is another corollary under the law of conspicuous waste. Obviously, if each garment is permitted to serve but for a brief term, and if none of last season's apparel is carried over and made further use of during the present season, the wasteful expenditure on dress is greatly increased. This is good as far as it goes, but it is negative only. Pretty much all that this consideration warrants us in saying is that the norm of conspicuous waste exercises a controlling surveillance in all matters of dress, so that any change in the fashions must conspicuous waste exercises a controlling surveillance in all matters of dress, so that any change in the fashions must conform to the requirement of wastefulness. It leaves unanswered the question as to the motive for making and accepting a change in the prevailing styles, and it also fails to explain why conformity to a given style at a given time is so imperatively necessary as we know it to be. For a creative principle, capable of serving as motive to invention and innovation in fashions, we shall have to go back to the primitive, non-economic motive with which apparel originated, the motive of adornment. Without going into an extended discussion of how and why this motive asserts itself under the guidance of the law of expensiveness, it may be stated broadly that each successive innovation in the fashions is an effort to reach some form of display which shall be more acceptable to our sense of form and color or of effectiveness than that which it displaces. The changing styles are the expression of a restless search for something which shall commend itself to our aesthetic sense. But as each innovation is subject to the selective action of the norm of conspicuous waste, the range within which innovation can take place is somewhat restricted. The innovation must not only be more beautiful, or perhaps oftener less offensive, than that which it displaces, but it must also come up to the accepted standard of expensiveness. It would seem at first sight that the result of such an unremitting struggle to attain the beautiful in dress should be a gradual approach to artistic perfection. We might naturally expect that the fashions should show a well-marked trend in the direction of some one or more types of apparel eminently becoming to the human form, and we might even feel that we have substantial ground for the hope that today, after all the ingenuity and effort which have been spent on dress these many years, the fashion should have achieved a relative perfection and a relative stability, closely approximating to a permanently tenable artistic ideal. But such is not the case. 
it would be very hazardous indeed to assert that the styles of today are intrinsically more becoming than those of ten years ago, or than those of twenty, or fifty, or one hundred years ago. On the other hand, the assertion freely goes uncontradicted that the styles in vogue two thousand years ago are more becoming than the most elaborate and painstaking constructions of today. The explanation of the fashions just offered then does not fully explain, and we shall have to look farther. It is well known that certain relatively stable styles and types of costume have been worked out in various parts of the world, as, for instance, among the Japanese, Chinese, and other Oriental nations, likewise among the Greeks, Romans, and other Eastern peoples of antiquity, so also. In later times, among the peasants of nearly every country of Europe, these national or popular costumes are, in most cases, adjudged by competent critics to be more becoming, more artistic than the fluctuating styles of modern civilized apparel. At the same time, they are also, at least usually, less obviously wasteful. That is to say, other elements than that of display of expense. Are more readily detected in their structure. These relatively stable costumes are commonly pretty strictly and narrowly localized, and they vary by slight and systematic gradations from place to place. They have, in every case, been worked out by peoples or classes which are poorer than we, and especially they belong in countries and localities and times where the population. Or at least the class to which the costume in question belongs is relatively homogeneous, stable, and immobile. That is to say, stable costumes which will bear the test of time and perspective are worked out under circumstances where the norm of conspicuous waste asserts itself less imperatively than it does in the large modern civilized cities. Whose relatively mobile, wealthy population today sets the pace in matters of fashion. The countries and classes which have, in this way, worked out stable and artistic costumes, have been so placed that the pecuniary emulation among them has taken the direction of a competition in conspicuous leisure, rather than in conspicuous consumption of goods. So that it will hold true in a general way that fashions are least stable and least becoming in those communities where the principle of a conspicuous waste of goods asserts itself most imperatively as among ourselves. All this points to an antagonism between expensiveness and artistic apparel. In point of practical fact, the norm of conspicuous waste. Is incompatible with the requirement that dress should be beautiful or becoming, and this antagonism offers an explanation of that restless change in fashion, which neither the canon of expensiveness nor that of beauty alone can account for. The standard of reputability requires that dress should show wasteful expenditure, but all wastefulness is offensive to native taste. The psychological law has already been pointed out that all men, and women perhaps even in a higher degree, abhor futility, whether of effort or of expenditure, much as nature was once said to abhor a vacuum. 
but the principle of conspicuous waste requires an obviously futile expenditure, and the resulting conspicuous expensiveness of dress is therefore intrinsically ugly. Hence we find that in all innovations in dress, each added or altered detail strives to avoid condemnation by showing some ostensible purpose, at the same time that the requirement of conspicuous waste prevents the purposefulness of these innovations from becoming anything more than a somewhat transparent pretense. Even in its freest flights, fashion rarely, if ever, gets away from a simulation of some ostensible use. The ostensible usefulness of the fashionable details of dress, however, is always so transparent a make-believe and their substantial futility presently forces itself so badly upon our attention as to become unbearable, and then we take refuge in a new style. But the new style must conform to the requirement of reputable wastefulness and futility. Its futility presently becomes as odious as that of its predecessor, and the only remedy which the law of waste allows us is to seek relief in some new construction, equally futile and equally untenable. Hence the essential ugliness and the unceasing change of fashionable attire. End of first part of chapter 7